welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove, and I'm joined by a man who keeps all his money in the Cayman Islands. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. When you say Cayman Islands, do you mean piggy bank under the mattress? I yeah. go double security. You piggy it- bank and then under the mattress. It's very uncomfortable, but no one can find it. And that's what you call the Cayman Islands. Yeah, and then I write on Sharpie, Cayman Islands. That's <laughs> what I've heard. Don't tax me. Parentheses, offshore accounts. <laughs> I mean, your definition is as good as anyone's, I think right? I think I'm good to go. I don't yeah. see how this could possibly fail. One other um, team going mm-hmm. to the Cayman Islands very, very soon. They're yep. there right now. It's the U.S. men's national team. They are there to play Cuba away-ish at a, at a neutral venue. And I feel for those poor, poor journalists who had to travel to the Cayman Islands, that luxury <laughs> paradise, I don't know how they're going to uh, make it happen. I saw an American Outlaws post uh-huh. saying the, uh, the hardships we go through yeah, right. um, exactly. to follow the U.S., and it was from a balcony overlooking a beach. Yeah. Maybe that's a good way to like reward the people who traveled uh, to that game, <laughs> given that it hasn't always been the most fun to watch the U.S. men's national team this, is true. this year. Yeah, it's like an end-of-year reward. Yeah, right? <laughs> sort of. So, that costs you a lot of money. We yeah. are, are going to... Oh, yeah, U.S. soccer don't pay for Not it. Not so much now. We are going to talk uh, USA-Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, the final Nations League group stage game, because it is of relative importance. Um, <laughs> we've also got... You made that barely convincing. But we've also... <laughs> I'm barely convinced. We've also got 10 uh, U.S. men's national team-themed questions that we'll dig into pretty soon, because this mm-hmm. won't be too long of a preview. Uh, no, Fair? I would I would say not. Given that we're uh, going to break down how Cuba play and all that kind of stuff, not so much. Uh, the way they play is uh, attempting to be defensive and hopeful. Well, not even. Do you remember they were sort of in a mid block when we saw them at RFK, and when we watched all that footage of them before, they kind of opened themselves up. I'll to go them. ahead and adjust that to poorly. The way yeah. they play is poorly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so to put this in context, mm. the U.S. does need to win this game. They do in order to finish top of the CONCACAF Nations League group also true. and go to the semi-finals, which will happen in June 2020. Mm-hmm. So the US, it does matter. This game does matter in that the US does need a result. It's just that the results should be easy to get. Yeah. Does uh, this remind you of any situation? Yeah, right. You, I assume you're drawing some allusions to Kuva here. Uh, because, yeah, it, it sort of does. Obviously, less pressurized. We just need the win. Yeah. It's not a sort of like, and it seems maybe possible, but maybe impossible. Uh, with Cuba, I think we talked about this on the Friday night, Saturday morning review show, that like we should be expecting the win. We should not be expecting another 7-0 blowout or something like that. Yeah. We should still be hoping for a solid win and a convincing win, but I think what you're pointing to is pressure is kind of on a little bit, but also kind of off, and there's a feeling of like, well, we should be able to handle this, it shouldn't be a problem. And that's very much like the final Hex game against Trinidad. So I am framing this in my head, and Mm -hmm. I... I think I'm putting it out there on Total Soccer Show because I think people should think of it this way as a very miniature, low-bar repeat mm-hmm. of that Trinidad October 2017 World Cup qualifier game. Right. We need a result. We should get a result, but we're going away from home. And right. Behalter, again, has – I mean, he's played most of his games at home. Mm-hmm. The only away game so far is the loss um, to Canada mm-hmm. in Canada. Inhospitable, hostile Canada. It was right. the whole thing. But like, so Berhalter seems to have it in his head mm-hmm. that it's a thing that the, the group has to learn yep. uh, to you know, go on the road and get results. Mm-hmm. So there is that element to it as well. This would be the first away win. He's taking the group away yeah, to the Cayman Islands, mm-hmm. but they've got to get an away win. I think this is going to probably be quite an ugly game. Yep. That um, if the US is mentally prepared, they still come out of it with like a 2 0, 3 0 win. Mm-hmm. I'll be very happy with that. Bearing in mind, Canada beat them 6 0 at home 
only one nil away. Right. And, and yeah, I think you're going to a stadium that, uh, what, the capacity is like 3,000 thereabout. Yep. We the don't know tru- how. The Truman Bottom Sports Complex. Right. And we don't know how good the field is going to be, how good the facilities will be, how good the preparation facilities will be. And all that is to say that it shouldn't necessarily matter that much in the sense that like it might matter. But I still think that the U.S. shouldn't let that factor into yep. their considerations for this game. We want to see the U.S. come out aggressive and hungry the way they did against Canada. Yeah. Maybe they don't score inside the first two minutes. That wouldn't be the worst thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I do still want to see the U.S. very much on the front foot going for it. And like maybe being ruthless, maybe they do win 5-0. That would make me very happy. So we're not going to do like a preferred starting 11, I don't right? think so. But we are going to sort of raise some of we the We say we're not going to. We may end up doing it. We may end up accidentally yeah. doing it. Mm-hmm. Here's some of the questions I have in my head um, going into this. Is one of them who should be in the starting 11? Because if so, we're definitely going to do it. I mean, most of them are, right? So, <laughs> for example... Yeah. Do you reward Giassi Zardes mm. with his two-goal game, good performance um, against Canada, and have him start in the Cayman Islands against Cuba? Mm. Or do you give Josh Sargent more international experience, more um, CONCACAF away experience, which he hasn't got at all? Mm-hmm. Um, or oh, he has in Canada. He has a bad experience in October in Canada. Uh, do you build up Josh Sargent's international experience? My, I think my answer to this is I don't really care, but it's not like because I don't care. It's because my reasons for caring for both kind of balance each other out because okay. Zardes, it's like, yeah, he showed he could do it. He had a strong game. Maybe we want to build on that and keep kind of developing the patterns and the rhythms and see how effective he can be versus Josh Sargent. He's there. We may as well give him a chance, but then giving him a ch- chance against Cuba and if he excels and gets a hat trick are we going to be more impressed because it's still against Cuba because yeah whatever the result is whoever scores a hat trick or does really well it is always oh it's against Cuba so okay all that in mind I'm going to say I would start Josh Sargent Mm -hmm. just to get him another cap so so that he can say I've had a successful road experience so that if we need him come the hex next year to be on the road at least he has this bit of experience right it's not the same as going away to Honduras Mm -hmm. it's very very different but it's it's more similar than not playing at all yeah Okay, okay. Right. I'm so fine with that. Answer. Yeah, so I think mine sort of canceled out, so I'm, I'm yeah. willing to go with you putting it over the top of, yeah, let's go Josh Sargent. Okay, here's, the, here's another big question. Um, if we want to take this seriously and make sure we get the win, mm-hmm. there's an argument for just putting your strongest lineup out there. There's also an argument for John Brooks is very fragile, mm-hmm. so maybe this would be a smart place to not start him and let sort of... Tim Ream and Aaron Long play centre-back, or yeah. let Walker Zimmerman play yeah. play centre-back. Where, where do you fall on that? I fall on the we should play some of our stronger players and not yeah. some of our others. I would be fine with John Brooks not playing this game as an example. I would too. Uh, because If for another reason, because I want to see what the other centre-backs can do if they come in against a team that we're supposed to dominate. Does that factor into how they play? Does it change the way they play? Are they more aggressive with John Brooks? I feel like we kind of saw what we needed to see from him against Canada. We know what we're going to get from him. Maybe, hopefully, we don't need him against Cuba. Yeah. Uh, so I'm okay with giving him the break. I'm, uh, I'm just I'm just mostly fine with not injuring him. So I yeah. think that's the best argument for not starting there him. There we right? are. But but in other spots, like I, j- I would not mind seeing Jackson Ewell going again at that number six spot or yeah. maybe seeing somebody else not named Will Trapp. And I don't mean that to be so disrespectful to Will Trapp. It's just... I sort of know at this point that, in my mind, it's Yule Bradley right there, uh, Tyler Adams theoretically, hopefully, ahead when of them. Back, when, when he's back, when he's growing back. his hill. And so, at this point, we're looking at, like, it will trap as maybe the fourth choice, number six. I don't think we need to see what he can do against Cuba here. I think we need to see more of Jackson Yule or more of Alfredo Morales as a number six or whomever else might step into that spot. So, Weston McKenney, would mm-hmm. you start Weston McKenney? I think so. I think just yeah. because he was so effective in that game against Cuba the first time around, mm-hmm. playing as the number 10, kind of running running midfield, being creative, making stuff happen, going for like reverse flicks and shots from distance. Yeah. I wouldn't mind having that energy, but also because 
to the point of energy, he brings in that enthusiasm and that physicality. This is going to be a physical game. I think you need somebody who's more than capable of knocking over uh, opposition players when they try to knock you down. Here's one wrinkle that has to be somewhere in Berhalter's mind. I don't know how high up or, or low down. Um, Reggie Cannon and Aaron Long mm-hmm. are both potentially making moves to Europe in January. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's a possibility for either of them. They're both kind of on the cusp in terms of the percentage of games they've played for the United States that would qualify them automatically for a work permit, especially in the UK, where it's a little bit tougher. Um, there, I think there's a strong argument. There's two ways to this. There's, a, there's an argument that says both of them should play some part in this game because they need the caps and you want to like benefit their careers long term. Mm-hmm. Then there's another argument of things like that shouldn't even be part of the considerations. It should be all about winning the game. Yeah, unless you're playing Cuba, in which case it absolutely should be part of the consideration. Because we do know that there have been moments, or at least we think there have been moments in the past when maybe a player was called in because they were looking for a move, or a player was called in because yeah. that would help the club with the kind of standing of that player. So mm-hmm. I do or think it would help the club make the argument to MLS that they deserve to be a targeted allocation money player. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for saying that more succinctly than I could. Um, and so I do think that you have those considerations from time to time. Away to Cuba, even in a competitive match, it's still I shouldn't. I, I don't expect it to be so much so that like Aaron Long is only at 95% because he played uh, against Canada. I still think like that's enough for him to go and be fine and still get that that one cap that means he's a little bit closer to the percentage necessary. So Aaron Long I could see starting anyway because mm-hmm. he's just, you know, arguably one of our best two centre-backs. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Reggie Cannon, it's a tougher ask, right? Because you've got uh, Serginho Dest. Mm-hmm. You've got DeAndre Yedlin, who maybe deserves a start after only coming on for the, the latter part. Uh, against Canada like that's the tougher ask for me Mm -hmm. but he may be the guy that needs it more yeah he may be and I think also though that like you got DeAndre Yedlin some minutes maybe he's okay with like not having to play against Cuba I mean I know everybody always wants to play every single minute but like maybe that's where you could explain it a bit more of like we want to get Reggie some more minutes but also maybe the cup and then like it (laughs) kind of it maybe alleviates some of that burden but I do think it makes sense to go with Reggie Cannon maybe it makes sense to go with DeAndre Yedlin at right wing maybe it makes sense to go with Serginho Dest at left wing and we just go with three fullbacks as as two attackers and a fullback or Dest at left back and you could conceivably with substitutions get all of them on the field at some point Mm -hmm. right but again I feel like we're both looking past Cuba in a way and looking at things like international caps I'm always really aware that it's Kind of dangerous to be doing that. It, it, it's a it's a difficult position. What was us uh, for us to be in? Because like we don't want to look past Cuba, but also simultaneously to say like, oh, it's a big test. It's a big challenge. How are we going to get past them? Would be disingenuous. Like it's yeah. it's it's also not. But it's a competitive game away in Concacaf. It can always be physical. Can always be difficult. I'm, I wouldn't say we're looking past them. I think we're looking the appropriate amount. Slightly past them. Okay. <laughs> Just beyond them. Yeah, we're not looking I, totally past them. I think as a concept, I like your earlier idea mm-hmm. of um, resting guys here and there, like yeah. say John Brooks, where it makes sense, mm-hmm. but not just saying like, ah, let's give a bunch of guys a run out. Yeah. Right? There is mm-hmm. a nice middle ground yeah. where where it's a really competitive team and uh, and we still win the game, but we don't risk hurting people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about in the midfield, though? W- what would you like to see there? Because we saw... Like Definitely Jackson Yule, okay. like you said. Um, I might. I, I understand your argument for McKenney. Mm-hmm. Did he score a hat trick last time? The fastest hat trick in whatever yeah. history. Um, I could see an argument for resting yep. Western McKenney in this game and letting Alfredo Morel, Morales start at the number mm-hmm. eight spot. And I think then my preference would be Sebastian Jet's going to be forced out of this team when Christian Pulisic comes mm-hmm. back. Pretty likely, right? I wouldn't mind seeing Leggett get another sort okay. of 80, 90 minutes 
in the number 10 spot. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's fine with me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we could see that. We might see McKinney as a 10 and Morales as an 8. Yeah. We could see any number of kind of rotations. Legette, though, right? I don't think maybe I would Legette be too bummed out. Maybe Legette on the wing if Morris or Ariola doesn't mm-hmm. need to go again. Part of the, the, the upside of Legette is that he can play attacking midfield or wing. Since you mentioned the wing and versatility in the options that some of our players have, I'll just keep asking you, do you want to see Serginho Dest play this game? And if so, where would you most like to see him play? Because I do think we could see him in like between two and four positions, potentially. I think I'd like to see him play uh, left back. To start? To start, okay. just because I think... Um, we're going to have moments in the future where right. he needs to... I think right back's the strongest spot, but I think there'll be moments in the future where we need him to play left back. Mm-hmm. So why not play him at left back? I agree. Yeah. And I also and think... Honestly, I'm also thinking of the Canon uh, work permit needs the caps situation. So yeah. I, I clear out the space at right back mm-hmm. by having Des play left back. I, I agree. And I agree also because I think that this is a good time for the United States to kind of I, I think it's okay to have game plans for when you know you're going to have to be a bit more defensive against stronger op- uh, opposition I think it's okay to have game plans that are much more attacking when you know you're going to have more of the ball and more chances this would be one of those latter opportunities and so yeah. it makes sense to me to try some more attack minded players who can get forward but can still defend Tim Ream I guess what I mean is not going to go bombing down that left wing or not do it nearly as regularly as say Sergio yeah. Dest and he could play left center back in Brooks's mm-hmm. absence so that yeah, might true. work out perfectly for Tim Ream exactly so like I want to see the U.S. essentially try some different stuff, keep it mostly consistent, but build on aspects of the game plan we saw against Canada so that, again, it still is sort of consistent direction in where this team is going as opposed to like, yep, we're going to change it up entirely. So speaking of, I think the one major difference Mm -hmm. against Canada that I'd like to see repeated against Cuba is the defensive shape. Right. Uh, so we, we talked about it a lot, right? Where instead of being the 4-4-2, it was more like a 4-2-3-1 shape. And it was a lot more intelligent about um, not leaving gaps between the lines, not leaving space to be exploited. Cuba's not good enough to exploit any space that we give them. So in a way, that doesn't matter as a consideration for winning this game. Again, mm-hmm. looking just beyond them, not entirely past them. Um, but I think if we lined, if we do line up in that defensive shape, it would at least be an indication that this is the defensive shape going forward. Yeah. Is that Be- fair? Yeah, it is. Because, again, to reference the show from Friday, like if you see the U.S. back out in this kind of four-four-two with the front two attempting to screen midfield, yeah. it might work. But it still has me then confused of what's the point? That if like Canada is a team that can play their way through that, then is the bar for playing weaker teams Cuba? Like that, That's not a thing that's going to really help us that much. Yeah. So it makes much more sense to me to change it up and keep that sort of defensive shape that we saw against Canada and know, cause problems that way. I don't know why, but the fact that we both want it so badly mm-hmm. <laughs> makes me think that maybe we're going to see not the 4-2-3-1, but the old 4-4-2 because... But how to will roll out whatever works mm-hmm. against Cuba. And, and to be honest, even if we win with that, that means way less to me than winning and changing the defensive shape. Yeah. Just because then suddenly I'm like, okay, but then did we actually learn anything? Or is it still sort of like, ah, but see, it works against terrible opponents, so mm-hmm. maybe we should keep trying it. Like, I think we have enough of a sample size to say at least I do, to say that does not make me comfortable playing that sort of defensive uh, game plan. I think it gets overrun very quickly. So if we're going back to it against Cuba, I don't really understand the purpose of it, and that will bum me out pretty, pretty hard. So the game is Tuesday night. Uh, It's listed as a 7.30 Eastern kickoff. It's on Fox Sports 1. We will have a review of the game that night. We said we'd be happy with a... Just a 
a convincing result, right? Mm. It doesn't have to be seven nil again, but it'd be nice if it was two or three nil and a comfortable performance. That would right? be nice and get us top of the group through to the semi-finals. That would also be nice. Yeah. I like semi-finals of things. <laughs> I like today's sponsor. I do too. Today's sponsor is. SeatGeek. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event difficult on purpose? I actually do sometimes. You won't feel that way if you use SeatGeek. You will not because uh, they are dedicated to caring about the customer experience, which means they don't have annoying sites that have lots of pop-ups and they redirect you to a different page where suddenly the, the price is increased and you have two fewer <laughs> tickets and it doesn't really make any sense how that's happened. It's very simple. You can search your event uh, near you. You can search like like teams that you follow and find near and uh, far. Yeah, good opportunities, which... Um, uh, I, I did based on a uh, tweet from Charlie Bohm this weekend. He was pointing out that there was, I think, high school uh, football playoffs that were seven dollars, and you could, or maybe five dollars, and for seven dollars you could go see the Washington professional football team <laughs> play because that's how bad they are this season. So I looked at SeatGeek, and it is definitely true that uh, Washington professional home games are not exactly the draw they once were. Uh, Lions are visiting this coming weekend. You can find tickets for twelve dollars. Right, I thought NFL games were always sold out. Uh, well, when Depends how good the team is. when the team is one and nine and bottom of their division and yeah. things are not good and they have fired their coach, maybe there's less motivation to see them to the extent that the only home game the Washington professional football team uh, has coming up that is above like the twenty dollar mark is against the Eagles, and I'm assuming that's because it's Eagles fans coming to enjoy slaughtering the Washington team at home uh, in their own stadium. That would be my see, guess. And I you can see, contrast that with uh, their games on the road against the Panthers. That starts at eighty eight against the Pack. Those tickets started at 127. So road games, those teams are doing fine. They're still selling fine. But if you want to see uh, a football game in Washington, you can do so for cheap. I can't believe we up talking about the other football. One uh-huh. of the rare times on the total. Sunday. One of the rare times. Sure. And the reason Tally was able to find all those different ticket mm-hmm. prices is that SeatGeek pulls information from everywhere. It is the best aggregator um, of tickets from all mm-hmm. over the internet. It's like the whole ticket internet in one app. It is. And, it's, and it lists them, like, obviously by date, but you can see all the games that are upcoming, so you can sort of decide, like, okay, like, I really want to see that team, but tickets are 14 times more expensive than this second team I most want to see, so I'm going to go see that second team. Like, you can kind of contrast it that way and find what fits your budget the best, and you can also figure out if those tickets have the value you want, because we have the traffic light system. Yep. You can be guaranteed that you're getting... Uh, good value for your money. Well, whatever the value, you always get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is use the promo code. So download the SeatGeek app. Excuse me, download Mm -hmm. the SeatGeek app. Use the promo code TSS for $10 off your first purchase. That's TSS for $10 off your first purchase. Thank you very much to SeatGeek for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Daryl Grove, uh, we have sort of done the USA Cuba preview such as it is. Should we get to the questions that you mentioned previously? Uh, So. We put out the call for questions mm-hmm. via email and Twitter. We got, I don't know how many, but we've mm-hmm. chosen 10. We got yep. a lot of questions. Did you break down and start chosen. taking questions from Twitter? Did they have to be submitted? I actually did. I broke down and yeah, said, send them did. via their form or um, send them in a tweet. My thinking was that because Twitter has a limit on characters, mm-hmm. it means that they will actually the questions will be shorter. You've heard of right? threads, yes? Did we get any no, threaded no questions? One let, okay. I want to say no one gave us a threaded question. I'm going to go back and check. If we did get a threaded Mm. question, it won't be being answered. All right. Well, we did get uh, a variety of questions. We'll get to them now, starting with Matthew uh, Maxson, who asks or says, given the success of a more direct game plan, what do you think the Burhalter plan looks like going forward? So my thinking on this more direct game Mm -hmm. plan has evolved a little bit after um, reading some stuff from Joe Lowry 
um, reading some stuff from Sean Brooks, mm-hmm. uh, positionalplayscholar.com, uh, and also rewatching chunks of the game and chunks of the October game. I now think that essentially we, we did go more direct, but only because Canada just left gaping holes for us to go more direct. All right. right? So the, um, the more vertical play, I think, was into spaces that Canada had left wide open. Okay. Right? So if Berhalter's whole plan is we disorganize the opposition and then we exploit that space, if they're going to send Alfonso Davies way up the field and leave a gaping hole for Paul Ariola to run into, it just makes sense to quickly play the ball into that space. Mm-hmm. Right? If they've essentially disorganized themselves for us, um, then why not take advantage of it straight away? So then my assumption there was that, like, oh, they identified Alfonso Davies is getting forward uh, after the U.S. went ahead 1-0 like, uh, in the second minute, and then they sort of adjusted their game plan to attack that space. Oh, I'm uh, going to assume that since you went back and watched the October game, you're inclined to say that that's a thing that's maybe been the case uh, further back? Yeah, if you watch the... I mean, because of the way that 4-2-2-2 shape mm-hmm. works, the width comes from the fullbacks, right? right. So even in October, it was uh, Laria on one side, I believe it was Miller on the left. So the fullbacks got forward in both in both systems. There was always space in behind the fullbacks. We just didn't hit it the last time because we weren't good enough to hit it. We okay. weren't, and actually, I still maintain. I think we were right on the Friday Friday review show that the big thing is that we were able to win balls in midfield. Right? right. It's about the defensive setup that allowed us to win balls and then exploit those spaces they'd left. Yeah. And that, then, last time out, we weren't winning the ball back, so yeah. we couldn't get into those holes. No, and, and like I would say, not only we're not winning the ball back, but like when we were getting it back, it was because Canada sort of gave it away, either through yeah. a misplaced pass in our defensive third, or like a slightly long ball, but not particularly long ball that was maybe just slightly overhit. The point of that being that when the United States would get possession back, it was routinely from the goalkeeper, or from six yards from their own goal, yeah. like, and then you're trying to build all the way up the field with Canada sort of committed further up because we've allowed that to happen because they've overrun the midfield Friday night against Canada hosting Canada the U.S. were able to be a little bit more aggressive in sort of winning that ball back in the middle of the field further up the field because so the you defensive can go. shape exactly right? we yeah. didn't leave two central midfielders with space all around them to, yeah. to be exploited we essentially had three because Leggett would occupy like the tip of a midfield uh, triangle right. um, often in terms of in terms of our defensive shape yeah. so to answer Matthew's question um, I'm not really convinced that there's uh, <laughs> necessarily a game plan to go more direct all the time. But I'm hoping there is a game plan, like we talked about with the Cuba defensive shape, I'm hoping there is a game plan that sort of has this more sensible yeah. and effective defensive shape, which allows us to add some effective counterattacking mm-hmm. to the possession play where we maybe like spread the field and have guys on either touchline. And there will be some slow buildup, mm-hmm. but then also there'll be, it'll be interspersed right. with some quick counterattacking because we'll actually win the ball in midfield. Right. Yeah, so d- would you say then that like a key part of our game plan going forward from an attacking standpoint relies on being able to win the ball back and having a better defensive yeah, game plan? Yeah, I think we've got so used to watching right. the U.S. not do that for almost a year mm-hmm. that we've forgotten that that's a key part of a lot of teams' plan mm-hmm. is to win the ball in midfield and then go. And this, strangely, does actually make me feel slightly better because one of the big questions I had coming out of that win over Canada was like, is this a sign that Berhalter has moved completely away from what we were doing and that's how it's going to be going forward? Yeah. Or, again, it was still under the assumption of he's moved completely away. So it was either like, has he moved completely away permanently or was this just a one-off desperation game? And in future games, we're going to go back to like the four-four-two sitting in, trying to possess the ball. And it made me a little bit more concerned than seeing it from the perspective of, no, this is sort of an adaptation and evolution defensively to allow us to then have more of a uh, proactive attacking game plan that features aspects of what he wants to do, then it's not a complete abandonment. It's a fairly pretty big adjustment defensively, a slightly yeah. uh, 
to like, fit. Not even like a slightly moderate adjustment uh, from an attacking standpoint, but then it keeps kind of the cohesion of what's happening. And it was designed to exploit a weakness right. that Canada exposed, mm-hmm. right? Which is that to me, that's the most encouraging thing because that's not a thing you would say about the Berhalter era mm-hmm. so far. So maybe the thing I'd like to see going forward is Berhalter coming up with game plans to exploit what the opposition do. That would be an ideal game plan and an ideal right? approach to managing a soccer team. Yep. Sure. Ready for the next question? Mm-hmm. It's from Henry Bushnell. I know Henry. The Henry Bushnell um, of Yahoo. He just asks, I mean, he started a sentence with a, with a symbol, which is weird. Unacceptable. Percentage chance US qualifiers for Qatar 22. Mm-hmm. Percentage right. chance that we get through the hex and qualify for the World Cup. This is not academic at all. This is maybe not even based on like rational faith. But oh, I made up a number. I'm, I'm, I am <laughs> probably more optimistic than a lot of people, and I think that may be misguided. Like It may just be that I'm still existing in a world of, yeah, but the U.S. still qualifies. Even when they didn't, I still maybe have that perspective. I also do think that a lot of the Hex teams are going to be weaker than they've historically been. Mm-hmm. I would remind people that this Canada team is probably the best Canada team we've seen in 10, 15, 20 years, if not ever. Yeah. So like, I, I look at that. Can you give us a number soon? Yeah, I'm just looking at like explaining why I think my number is higher than a lot of people's. Because initially I was like 60. percent I'd say I'd put myself more at like 70 percent right now. I've got 85. Okay, 85 percent. Mm-hmm. Right. I would and honestly, I would say for the 2018 World Cup, it was probably a similar number. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of things that I mean, like, it was, it was probably 90 percent until that game in Cuba. Yeah, like, that's really where exactly. we were at that point. Like, oh, we're going to win. It's fine. It's always a high percentage, right? right? So I mean, 85 percent may even be uh, like. Me being cautious because yeah. of what happened last time. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that maybe no disrespect to Henry, but the best way to answer this is to say that I think we are both optimistic about qualification, yeah. even if we still have some big questions and for me some concerns about the the state of the team right now. And we we sort of think we almost know what the hex is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. It's probably going to be the USA, Mexico, Costa Rica, Jamaica, mm-hmm. Honduras, Honduras, and El Salvador. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Panama have fallen way down those rankings. The only wrinkle could be if Canada find a way to get a bunch of points, maybe in 2020 is when they'd have to do it. They're going to um, just miss out to El Salvador. Because we, we took a good look mm-hmm. at the FIFA rankings and how the point system works, and they're going to just miss out, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think so. So you look at some of those teams, and, and I fully back the United States to be able to get results yep. at home. Top three, right? Yeah. Top three, you automatically qualify. If you mm-hmm. finish fourth, you end up in a playoff against teams from the lower, the lower yeah. uh, qualification. Mm-hmm. And I do also think that like, it's difficult to say because we've only seen the U.S. away to Canada right now. But in that game, we didn't see a lot of variation from Berhalter in terms of what he was trying to do, which in that situation was not great. But I say that just to say that like, you look at the arena model of qualifying for the World Cup for the United States, and it's win at home, hope for a draw on the road, set up shop and play for a draw because it's going to be really difficult. Thus far, I haven't really heard Greg Berhalter talk about that being his plan, about that being the strategy of we're going to sit off and be defensive and and hope for the draw, hope for that one point. So I kind of right now I'm expecting the U.S. to, with the kind of patterns we've seen and if they continue to develop those, implement those on the road and go for those three points. At least that's what I'm hoping for, and that's where my 70% comes from. All right. Uh, next question mm-hmm. from Robert Cordova. Any thoughts on at US soccer underscore, underscore ESP? This is a Spanish language uh, Twitter feed of US soccer. Not tweeting anything in over one whole year. I'm sure we both have all kinds of thoughts. I mean, a lot of them contain expletives. So yeah, yeah. That, that's about where my level of thinking is. I mean, I'm not surprised. I don't think it's been a priority. I don't think it will be a priority. I think it, there are... It makes a mockery of una nacion, uno equipo. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes, it certainly, certainly does. So, I mean, 
I, that's my thought, basically, is it's really frustrating. Frustrating. It doesn't really make any sense. It seems, again, pretty tone-deaf from the Federation that has been consistently tone-deaf this year. Uh, so, yeah, that's my thinking right now. My thinking is they should just hire someone. Mm-hmm. Hire one person whose job it is to produce Spanish-language content right. full-time. That's, right. It's that simple. Pay yeah. them however much it costs to pay someone uh, to, to produce Spanish-language, U.S. national team, uh, national teams mm-hmm. content, and Espanol, Full time, because I think I think US Soccer's probably run into a problem that a lot of MLS teams seem to run mm-hmm. into, which is they launch um, um, an en español Twitter feed or content, and mm-hmm. it's basically just someone translating the English language content or someone who's bilingual who's tasked with doing it part time. Mm-hmm. Hire one full time person, and you'll you'll have an endless flow of Spanish language content. Yeah, right. Yeah, have that person write for their website, write for Twitter, uh, write for like, US Women's National Team uh, Twitter, write for all the Twitters um, in Spanish, and then you'll have the problem solved with one person. With one person, and one other thing I would add to that is like emphasizing not just translating the articles that are already being written, not just translating the yes. tweets that are already being tweeted, because I think so oftentimes like like the U.S. soccer Twitter focuses on the players that are of greatest appeal, the best stories for their dominant audience. But I think Latinos would probably rather hear about Latino players. Like not, not yeah. all the time. It doesn't have to be just focused on that. But like you should gear your um, or structure your content towards the audience in mm-hmm. which it will be received. And if they're reading a Spanish translated article about how great Weston McKinney is doing in the Bundesliga, maybe some people will want that. But I'm sure some, a lot of people would be equally excited to hear about, say, uh, Ventura Alvarado, like captaining uh, Nakaxa right now and how mm-hmm. well they're doing in Lega Mekis. It doesn't just have to be like Spanish speaking sp- players and things like that. But I think some more representation would probably be a good step. And it's, it is time that U.S. soccer turned this around, right? There was a story recently of uh, Hugo Perez. Yeah. Um, he thinks part of the reason he was let go as a youth team coach was because he was speaking Spanish to his players and mm-hmm. he was told not to do that. And he was kind of like, I'm still going to do that. I mean, the fact that there's this perception that U.S. soccer um, from top to bottom is English language only or English language heavily preferred is a problem. And I think hiring a Spanish language content person would be at least one big step towards making that not the case. I would agree with you, my friend. Okay. So let's, let's hire some people. <sighs> Hopefully Robert's question has been answered. Let's answer Alex uh, Carnegie's question. Would it be better for Long's career, Aaron Long's career, to go to Southampton or Marseille? As Daryl said earlier, Aaron Long has been linked with a move uh, this coming January in the January yeah. window. To Southampton and Marseille. There apparently. we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for Long's career, Southampton – for the U.S. men's national team's benefit, maybe Marseille. Interesting. Okay. You, I, let me, uh, let I me kind of would have said the exact opposite of that. So okay, I'm well, interested. let me game this out. Uh-huh. All right. So for Long's career, I think the best move is Southampton. Uh, one, because he's already 27, mm-hmm. right? So if he's going to go to the Premier League, he probably needs to do it now. If you think of your career like going to the pinnacle is going to the Premier League, mm-hmm. I think he needs to do it now. Because if he goes to Marseille, does well for a couple of years, then he's almost 30. And then I think... Teams will be looking at him thinking, eh, I don't know, we don't need to sound like an untested 29, 30-year-old. So I think the gamble has to happen now in terms of being a Premier League player. Mm-hmm. Right, let, me, let me game this out. Um, also, at Southampton, the coach is Ralph Hasenhutl, who is a former Leipzig coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's worked with Ranić, I believe. He's a believer in the, the Red Bull pressing style. So I think he would be w- going into a similar stylistic situation and a coach that's going to ask of him similar things to what's been asked of him um, at Red Bull New York, where where he's done really well. Okay. Right? Um, also, Hasenhutl has... Uh, one, Southampton are not doing very well right now. So they do sort of... the space for someone to be... Ins- a fresh face to be inserted into the team. And Hasenhutl sometimes plays a back three, so there's literally more centre-back spots available um, 
at Southampton, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Okay, at Marseille, he's going to have a slightly... By the way, my, my yep does not uh, imply that you, you have swayed me here. Yeah. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> let, let me game this out, though. Yeah. Then at Marseille, um, I think it's better for the U.S. national team. Uh, one, because of something Berhalter said in the uh, post-match press conference after mm-hmm. Canada. Like, he was praising Aaron Lung, but he also said that because of the way New York Red Bulls play, um, Aaron Lung isn't always great at selecting the correct pass because the Red Bull style is to go vertical really quickly, mm. right? So if you went and played for a team that wasn't a Red Bull style team, which Southampton kind of is under Hasenhutl, that might benefit his US national team uh, like passing profile. You know what I mean? He would mm. learn different passing options. Um, he's also going to have probably an easier time establishing himself at Marseille, and the US national team doesn't risk him being like um, out of form or having like a Josie moment where he's like embarrassed in the Premier League because it's all too much too too soon. So maybe Marseille is the safer option for his um, for his for the US national team, especially if we're thinking about we're going to need him in what September 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Premier League destroys him by September 2020, then suddenly we're in trouble. League One probably a little easier. It's interesting. Uh, so a couple of things. It's interesting the way you interpret that question, and I'm not saying incorrectly, but like. Your, like, uh, I guess, conclusion is that he obviously wants to play in the Premier League because that's the best league on the planet. That's where the most money is. It is, if that's his goal, which is, like, it's interesting because, like, that's not kind of where I took that one. And you're right, that it is the most high-profile league. It's the one that most Americans watch. So if he wants to kind of, like, increase his fame and increase his fortune, it probably is the Premier League that makes more sense. I would but argue I- every player wants to go to the Premier League, more or less. They all talk about it. I'm trying to think if there's anybody who's ever said they don't want to play in the Premier League. So, Lionel Messi doesn't want to. Ha in your face. Uh, that, that's definitely it. That's the exception. Or that's the rule, not the exception. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I think like, it's strange to say about like, a Marseille team who are currently second in Ligue 1 um, that it would probably be easier for him, in my mind, long-term and short-term to get minutes because Southampton, in the relegation zone right now, we have seen what happens when relegation teams start bringing in players. And what tends to happen is maybe some hit. A lot of them don't. There's a lot of rotation that if he comes in, starts a game after like when he's been there a couple weeks, looks bad, maybe they don't take that risk on him again. And then yeah. suddenly now he is in his, like, and if they get relegated, now he's playing for a championship team and maybe isn't even playing that much until yep. he really establishes himself. So, yeah, but if, if you're asking me to defend this, mm-hmm. I'm saying this is probably his one shot at being a Premier League player. Right. And you either take the shot and see if you can do it. And mm-hmm. part of it would be taking a gamble on you can be part of turning Southampton around. Or maybe this chance never comes again. Yeah. So I guess I guess what I would then say, like if I could like blend the two, um, maybe where I'm going to come from it is more of a like for him if that is his life goal is to play in the Premier League and that's a thing he wants to really push himself and see if he can do, then that is probably the one that makes more sense. But to your point of him being 27, I think going to Marseille, I do think the French League is a bit more forgiving. You don't have the physicality and the intensity and the intense spotlight on you. I feel like that's a league where he could play longer, more consistently, is my uh, at least assumption. So that's where I say I think I would rather see him go to Marseille. But if he... I'd like, your, I'd like an excuse to watch Ligue 1. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm with you there. But yeah. if he would rather go to the Premier League, then I'd rather him go to the Premier League. I he guess is the best way I can answer it. He with, does. With that yeah. haircut. Mm-hmm. With that haircut? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or he just really likes Hawkeye. That's the other option. <laughs> maybe Maybe it's both. <laughs> it could maybe be. It both. could be. No one really likes Hawkeye. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not even sure Jeremy Renner likes Hawkeye. <laughs> his wife supported his avenging to get him out of the house. That's true. I'm, I'm just saying. That's very true. <laughs> All right. Today's sponsor. Played 18, shot 18. Get out of here. Today's show is like, sponsored by... I get if you're by... very accurate. That doesn't mean you can hit the ball 500 yards. Just throwing that out there. Get it together, Hawkeye. By not Jeremy Renner. Mm-hmm. Today's show is sponsored by Hymns. Mm-hmm. 
a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Mm -hmm. Today, we are focusing on hair loss or what we're trying to achieve, no hair loss. Exactly, because 66% of men start to lose their hair by the age of 35. Once you've noticed that thinning hair, it can be too late. So some folks, say maybe Brad Guzan or uh, Greg Berhalter, go the shaving the head route so no one will ever tell. But as we've established previously, one day of stubble shows you where that bald pattern is. Yep. So unless you want to shave your head routinely and regularly, which itself then becomes effect- like, like, uh, like expensive and difficult and you might nick your head and then that's kind of a public thing. You could just go with hymns, which is a way easier solution for treating hair loss. And because society is unfair, mm-hmm. I do think part of the, the unpopularity of Greg Berhalter is that he is not a fully haired man. I mean, George Costanza would certainly agree with you. He Larry would, David right? as well. Uh-huh. They're the same person, but it still counts as two. <laughs> and as the hymns copy said, this Black Friday, which is mm-hmm. coming up, right? Um, secure the best deal of all, a healthier, thicker hairline. That's right. Imagine the lines outside the door to get that. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me, but it makes sense because you... Like sort of, you know, the holiday season is coming up. You're going to have the maybe the in-law who is uh, happy to talk about like, ooh, that hair is thinning, huh? Like you don't want to hear that. Oh, you want in-law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't want to deal with that in-law. Uh-uh. And so you can either avoid that you in-law entirely. When they say you say, no, it's thickening. Exactly. Exactly. That's what hymns will allow because you don't have to deal with the uh, awkward in-person doctor's visits uh, or long pharmacy lines. As Daryl said, hymns makes it very, very easy so you don't have to deal with the Black Friday crowds. Instead, you get connected to real doctors online, which will save you hours. No mm-hmm. lining up with the Black Friday crowds. Um, you, it's completely confidential and discreet. You answer a few quick questions. Doctor reviews it and then if it's right for you they'll prescribe the medication to treat hair loss and it's shipped directly to your door and you don't have a stampede of humans to deal with so that's good too you can try hymns today by starting out with a free online visit go to forhims.com slash total soccer that's f-o-r-h-i-m-s dot com slash total soccer forhims.com slash total soccer prescription products are subject to doctor approval and require an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate see website for full details and safety information this could cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or pharmacy remember it's forhims.com slash total soccer thank you to hymns for sponsoring today's episode back to some questions daryl i believe we left off with alex so let's go to randy who asks which players in the pool would benefit most from a move to a better league and which league or leagues would be a good fit okay we've already talked to Aaron long mm-hmm. i think it is like yeah it's now or never for mm-hmm. a move right because yep. uh, of his age he was, he was my number one and then i realized that we had this question coming up <laughs> um i would say paxton pomica Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it would be the worst thing if he played another year in MLS, but I think he's ready to go to the Netherlands or maybe the Bundesliga. Mm-hmm. I could see him fitting in there. He's got the good mix of technical ability, like, you know, uh, great technique, great eye for passing, not bad dribbling, like not not easy to shake off the ball. Um, and he seems to have that that hard work, self-improvement aspect to the game, which we kind of learned is really important mm-hmm. uh, for, for young Americans applying themselves in Germany. I think Paxton Pomichel fits the profile. Can you say any plays for FC Dallas real fast? Andy plays for FC Dallas? I think you could say pretty much the exact same thing for Reggie Cannon, which is uh, my other player that I had. Uh, thank you for uh, helping me out with that one. But yeah, I think Reggie Cannon is the other one that, that makes sense to me. And it really is everything you said, basically. That Where would you ne- send him? The Netherlands or, or the Bundesliga makes sense for me for Reggie Cannon. Yeah. I think that's just because that has become the place that Americans go to develop, uh-huh. in my mind. So why I'm, not continue that trend? So in my notes, I've got Reggie Cannon as a good fit for the EFL Championship. Okay. Yeah, I just think you want to toughen him up a bit? I think you'd do well. There. Yeah, right. I think an up-and-coming team that like might, that might be chasing promotion mm-hmm. I think would be a good fit for Reggie Cannon 
partly just because he's kind of young. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's got time to like gamble on, all right, this might be a future Premier League team. Like, I can spend a couple of years getting, uh, getting knocked around in the championship and uh, earning my way up. I, I don't necessarily want... You make a lot more money in the championship than in MLS as this well. This is true. I don't necessarily want a number value, but like the other thing I'm kind of confused 15. by right now... There we go. 15 million, is that what you think you should cost? Oh, uh, That's what I was going to go with. Well, it's just I'm confused. Like The, the story today was that... I forget who it was who were after um, Jean-Luc Abusio. Oh, uh, Fiorentina were after Jean-Luc yes. Abusio. They had offered $4 million. Apparently Sporting KC are holding out for $10 million. Uh-huh. Make of that what you will. But it does seem like the trend has been very young players... Who can be kind of bought for a much discounted rate? Chris Richards for one point five million. Yeah. Part of that is the existing relationship with Dallas and Bayern, but still, you've got a young players before they've kind of moved into that next level of starting regularly, playing regularly, like kind of a consistent seasoned pro as much as a like twenty one year old could be. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Reggie Cannon is in that category. So I don't know. Then does that increase his value or older decrease than Chris value? Richards, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's older than Bruce. He's older than Richards, right? Does that increase or decrease his value? Because it moves into that level, but then he has more experience that you can sort of look to as like, okay, he has been a professional. He has kind of accomplished some stuff. Yeah. So if you're a championship team, does that make you pay more or less because you're not getting a 17-year-old? I don't know. I'll be honest. I'm very confused mm-hmm. by how Major League Soccer yeah. values players because they ultimately sign off on the transfer, yep. right? Even this though Kevin true. came through the, the DA, I think Dallas would keep most of the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be sort of MLS agreement. They right? might keep all of it if he's homegrown. I forget how this works. Right. But I, yeah, but yeah, the valuations are weird. I mm-hmm. couldn't tell you... What uh, is what would seem an acceptable yep. offer for Reggie Cannon? All right. Yeah, All right. I would hope that maybe it's like Luchi Gonzalez and the people at FC Dallas have the best interests of Reggie Cannon at heart yep. and are sort of willing to accept a reasonable offer rather than hold out for a gigantic number. All right, yeah. let's hope for that. We'll see if that happens. Yeah. Uh, another one who I like, I don't really know why I'm going with this one, but I'm going to go with Will Trapp, who is consistently linked for the move away. But he is one who like we have seen what we need to see from him. We know what he's capable of at MLS level. If he goes abroad, he has a Greek passport. What's that? He has a Greek passport. There we go. So, so he's easily in the EU. So does that maybe help him develop more, or have we kind of reached what, like the level of development that he's going to develop to? I I would be surprised if he gets a move to mm-hmm. a big European league. Yeah. He may he may end up just deciding I desperately want to go to Europe, and then he does end up in like and maybe literally Greece, yeah, uh, or Turkey, or one of those sort of it seems like to be Scotland and the Championship are the two where he is most heavily linked, most routine. Yeah, even the Championship, I feel like might be might be a bit of an ask for him. Like yeah. he wouldn't like he wouldn't be embarrassed in the championship, mm-hmm. but I don't think he would be a valuable asset that a team's really going to go after. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes total sense to me. Um, so those were like the obvious candidates. The other one I looked at because I, I looked at the wording of this very carefully uh, was like I, I think my assumption was MLS players moving abroad, but it could have been like European place players who needs to move up to another level. Mm, okay. But looking at a lot of the kind of – looking at like the nine or so who came into this past camp, like I feel like they're all about where I want them to be right now. Maybe a few could get a move, but for the most part – does Weston McKinney moving right now to a more competitive league or like a tougher league, does that really help him when he hasn't even really cemented his role with Schalke right now? I don't know. Pulisic is at Chelsea. I think that's fine. Yeah. Zach Steffen on loan at Dusseldorf, but he's on loan from Man City. Like it's it's tough to know, to look at any of these players and really say they need to jump. Even a player like uh, Julian Green at Griffith Firth, like he's scoring goals there. He seems confident. I think he's found his level. I think he probably has. Yeah. So like I don't know if I want to then see him thrown up into the Bundesliga again and we see what happens. Maybe, maybe a lot of those European players are about where I want them to be for their development. Maybe I'd like uh, Richie Ledesma to go from young PSV yeah. to actual PSV. That is fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think not that exactly one makes a transfer so much as a <laughs> as a career progression. I've got two more quick ones. Jackson Yule, uh-huh. I think, um, could do well in La Liga because okay. he's quick and technical. I could see him as a 
Santi Cazorla type player, mm. maybe like in an, in an ideal world. Hopefully, right? fewer injuries. So yeah, but Jack, Jackson Yule to La Liga, yep. maybe, um, and Jordan Morris. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe, boy. maybe it's time. Maybe you've done all you can do in Major League Soccer. Maybe it's time to go to the Bundesliga mm-hmm. or the Netherlands. That dude's never leaving. He's probably not, is nope. he? But I think it would be great if he decided to right now. I think I didn't really fully he appreciate... He could catch someone's attention right now, right? With his performances in MLS oh, and yeah. performances for the national team. 100%. There's got to be some team out there that's like, ooh, interesting. And I would assume, based on the number of appearances he's made under Burhalter, that he would probably also be a shoe-in for a work permit because yep. he seems like a regular performer yeah. and appearance getter. Uh, I just think he really, really likes living in Seattle based on everything <laughs> I have read and the few comments I heard from him uh, after MLS Cup. Obviously, yeah. that was after his hometown had just won uh, the title. Yeah, so. it would be a terrible time to say, oh, I'm looking at a move to Europe. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. But we shall see. It would be, if ever there were a time, it probably is now where it's like, yeah, you have reached this next level in your career. Mm-hmm. Maybe you continue to develop and get even better in MLS, but maybe it is that move to push yourself uh, that would require you, that would be required in order to get to that next level. All right, ready for the next question? I believe so. Um, Christine Red asks, is there any evidence to support the idea that Bearhalter is more inclined to call up MLS players than players of equal ability in a different league? Or is that an unfair uh, narrative? I mean, the, the answer to this is yes, essentially. Because yes, you could absolutely make that argument based on the percentage of players called into any given camp. But that said, it is an unfair narrative, in my opinion, for a number of different reasons. The biggest one is just that it's the domestic league, and that's where you're going to be able to most readily, most easily pull players from. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is because of his own familiarity. A lot of that is because that's sort of what U.S. soccer does. Looking at like January camps, you're always going to be calling in MLS players, which does then give them more of an advantage because it increases familiarity. Yeah, I think there's, there's an argument that Behalter is more inclined to select players who are in, quote, the group, right. unquote, like mm-hmm. players he's already worked with. And it's not because they're MLS players, it's because he's already worked with them. Right. But a lot of those players have come from MLS because of things like January camp, mm-hmm. right? The other thing is, it, I think when people look at the, say, percentage makeup of um, a roster and see that there's like this many MLS players and this many European players, mm-hmm. it's worth bearing in mind that we just don't have that many European-based players, mm-hmm. right? Dwayne Holmes is the one where you could say like, oh, Holmes should be in the squad over, say, Roldan, or mm-hmm. Holmes should be in the squad over Legette. But that's really just one player we're talking about, right? It's, you, actually, you actually have to dig quite hard beyond that to find more uh, European-based players who are really established with their teams, and it's an easy argument for a caller. Yeah, and, and like I think we've been somewhere in between on a player like Alfredo Morales, where we had legitimate concerns about aspects of what he brings to the midfield, but then yeah. watching him in person, we saw some things that made us feel a little bit better, and so we're okay with him getting called in, but we're not going to be furious if he's not. We're mm-hmm. a little bit more frustrated with uh, Dwayne Holmes, as you mentioned, but another example I would say would be one like uh, Andrea Novakovic, where we will still get those tweets or still get those questions about, like, why won't Berhalter call him in? Why why isn't he getting any looks? And the answer is like, he's not scoring for Frosinone in Serie B. Yeah. And I'm not watching Serie B, but I can guarantee you that he probably should be scoring and that he's <laughs> not means that he shouldn't be called in. And yeah. like, I think you still get those like, oh yeah, but he's in Europe, so he's doing better, I'm assuming. And you don't really know that. I'm yep. not saying that's always the case because I do not think it's the case for Dwayne Holmes. I think he should be in there. But I don't even then think that that's a bias of, oh, well, I want to call in just MLS mm-hmm. players. I think every coach wants the best players they can possibly get. But I think it probably speaks to Berhalter either doesn't know if Holmes fits the system, doesn't feel like he has the rapport or relationship enough to believe Holmes fits the system, yeah. or maybe something else entirely. But I don't think it's just, no, he's in England. I don't want that. Yeah, and again, that's just one player, right? right? And then you, if you really wanted to just keep looking at the balance, 
balance of MLS versus European based, you've got to take injuries into account. The fact that Tyler Adams in Germany injured a lot, John Brooks in Germany mm-hmm. injured a lot, Tim Ware would have been caught up, injured for a long time, Christian Pulisic recently injured. Like the, we don't have that many senior players in Europe, and once a few of them get injured, like suddenly it's it's reasonably thin, right? Then the other big element that I think is worth talking about is people will argue for a call up for. Richie Ledesma, yeah. or Alex Mendes. I noticed you saying Gloucester. senior players, and it felt like that was a. Yeah, and I'm deliberately saying thing. that because um, one thing you could accuse Behalter of, mm-hmm. um, because he's kind of said this, is he only wants to call up players mm-hmm. that are seeing first team action, right? right? So he is going to favor uh, Walker Zimmerman over Chris Richards, because Chris Richards does not have a track record of playing first-team football, mm-hmm. right? He's playing for Bayern Munich U19s. Right. Right? Yeah. And so to Behalter, that's not... You need to be something of a seasoned professional, as in you need to have played first-team professional minutes for him to consider you for the national team. I don't necessarily think that's a bad metric. The The place you can quibble is with guys like... Uh, uh, Ledesma and Mendes and Gloucester, where they're playing for young Ajax and young PSV, which is playing against grown men mm. in the second division of Dutch football. But Behalter seems to consider young Ajax as kind of what the name says it is, which right. is the youth Ajax team, where really your teammates are all kids, mm-hmm. right? So I can see the argument for you haven't played a full professional game yet. I'm not going to consider you for the national team. Yeah, and as like a thought experiment, imagine he does bring in Alex Mendez. Imagine he starts Alex Mendez in a friendly against, I don't know, Jamaica. Like, if Mendez looked bad in that game, then the argument is like, well, he's really young. It's only his first camp. Let's give him another chance. Yeah. If he looks bad again, it's like, well, he's really young. Like, we want to see him get first team minutes. Like, it doesn't, in my mind, really help you that much to call on those players when you haven't even really solidified who your starting 11 is going to be and then who challenges those 11. Like, yeah. let's get the determined, definite starter, and then we can kind of bring in players to see where they fit in that pecking order. But I'm with you that right now, as much as I would like to see younger players who could be exciting, it's because it's an exciting possibility, but not yet a reality. Um, and then uh, one more point I wanted to make on this one, if you, if you don't mind. I don't want to like uh, no, no. Take, hijack your point too much. No, well, the one, one more thing I was thinking mm-hmm. I will get to after you, no, after no, no, go ahead, you go said ahead. your piece. All right, so the one counter-argument to this idea— I think you've already—I think we're going in the same place. We're direction. going the same place. Yeah. Is that Serginho Dest at the start of this season, mm-hmm. is he really so many times better than Serginho Dest at the end of last season? Hmm. Whereas like he was playing for young Ajax last season and it was clear he was eventually going to get moved to the full Ajax team. But there's kind of a refusal to really call him up for the senior team uh, or be even considered for the senior team before he played senior minutes. Right. Like maybe it was worth like, like mapping out the potential and saying, oh, I can see that kid's going to be brilliant. I mean, you can also argue he was with the U20s that yeah. time. So he's in the system anyway. And it's a maybe. It still is a maybe that like yeah. maybe he's good enough. We don't know. But I do think once you start starting regularly for Ajax in the league, in the Champions League, getting consistent minutes, you've shown you can do it at that level, yeah. which means you can do it for the national team or should be able to. So okay. to me, you still... I'll, I'll go with that. Logic. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. The last thing I would say, though, to like like bring it back sort were, of to, Were we going the same place, by the way? Not quite, idea? actually. Okay. Because like I, I still think, though, like I understand where the question is coming from in terms of like there is... The question a, being, does he favor MLS players? Yeah, because the there is evidence that he calls in more MLS players, again, because of all the reasons we've talked about. and Just numerically, you mean? Yes, yeah. but also because he has the January camp. That's the first camp he's in charge. And now we have the group. And yeah. a lot of those players came from that camp. And so, strangely, it's a, it's a weird way. I'm going to try to explain this. But essentially, like them being MLS players... 
it doesn't show to me that he has a bias towards MLS that is almost immaterial where they play. It's more so that where they play allowed them to be available for the camp that was yeah. formative in Berhalter establishing his system. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they are MLS players. It's that they're the players he feels most comfortable fitting into his system. Yep. And that is why I think there's that bias towards the group. I don't think it's necessarily MLS. I think if Liga Mekis like had a same schedule and we like were able to call in a bunch of players from Liga Mekis, I think we probably would. Yep. I think that's absolutely because he literally said I'm more comfortable with the options I have than mm-hmm. Dwayne Holmes, probably because he's worked with Roldan and Leggett, etc. Right. More times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Ready for All the next right. question? I think so. Yeah. All right. Next question is Serginho Des related. It's John Salazar is asking, where is Serginho Des's best position for the United States? Um... I don't really have a clever answer for this because I want it to be like wherever Burhalter says. But I think what we saw uh, this past game against Canada right now, my inclination is to say right back that he that's the obvious he did a good. I mean, it's just difficult because there are three other options there that we have seen play under Greg Burhalter, and whereas with left back, it's essentially Tim Ream and then Hope. Uh, so I is Hope what you call Daniel Lovitz. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe not. Uh, so it seems like it should be left back, but I think what he offered as a right back, I was fine with, and he looked very good doing what was asked of him. I think Reggie Cannon has too, but I think Serginho Dest is a better player than Reggie Cannon. So and I, think I go he's Dest. A, I think he's a better player than DeAndre Yedlin. Agreed. I think it's just an upgrade all around mm-hmm. to have Serginho Dest play right back ahead of Yedlin and Cannon. Yeah. Did, you, did your opinion on his one v one defending change uh, against Canada? Yeah, we had some we had some people say that I'm uh, I'm I'm biased and that I'm sure that he's a bad one v one defender. That's not just my opinion. I would clarify, I, um, but it, it changed a little bit. But it is still a. I would equate it with a DeAndre Yedlin sort of frustration that we both have about turning his back. That he can not do that for 15 games, but he came in, he subbed on, and he immediately turned his back when like a cross was coming in. Yedlin? And right yeah. there, I'm just like, I haven't seen him do that in a while, but I've seen him do it enough consistently over the years to know that it drives me nuts. <laughs> I am not there with Serginho Dest, but I will say that it probably is true that when he gets beat on a 1v1, or if he gets magged, or if he has to commit a foul because he got beat, it will probably stand out for me more so. I don't know if that's biased, but that's the best way I can explain it. I will it. say I went back and took a look at mm-hmm. his like, 1v1s against Alfonso Davies, mm-hmm. and he mostly stood up to okay. him. Yeah, there's a lot of times. I actually noticed, I went back and looked at some other Dest 1v1 defending. He's actually very good at just getting very tight to someone and just making life really hard for them. Mm-hmm. Because then if when you get tight, the danger is always that the player can then burst away from you with pace. Mm-hmm. No one, no one seems able to do that because he's so quick. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, but I think for an eighteen-year-old as well, I think it's good. I think what I'm what I'm trying to say though is like it's a thing that I have read about as being a vulnerability in his game. It's a thing that I have observed being a vulnerability. But I really like Serginho Dest. I want him to start for us yeah. consistently. So it's not as though it's a thing that I'm like, oh, he can't do it. He's bad. It's more of a like, I hope that isn't an issue because I don't want that to be an issue. Yeah. That's about where I am with it. And then in terms of his best position, I would say if you. You watch him play right back. Mm-hmm. He does things like the soul. Remember he got fouled after oh, yeah. winning the ball back and then doing mm-hmm. like a soul roll to get yep. away from someone and got clipped. Mm-hmm. I can't picture Yedlin or Cannon doing that. No. He just brings a level of quality and... I would say technical precision. That technical he can, precision, He yeah. can bring a ball down like under pressure. He can settle it. He can dribble a little bit. He can find his way into a pocket of space that he can then play a ball from. I think he does that better than a lot of players on that team and certainly yep. all of our right-back options at this point. And the reason I'm now more... Unless into, we're going Tyler Adams at right-back. <laughs> I'm now more into him as a right-back than, say, a right-winger mm-hmm. because I think if you can have that ability to like work out of tight spaces starting from deeper it lets us work our way out mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying yep. like early on i was i was a proponent of playing him on the wing 
just to make life easier for him. But I think he's already at a stage with this Canada performance where he doesn't need life made easy for him. All right. You know what I mean? He can I, just be a contributor. I do know what you mean. But now this begs the question, which uh, maybe is why you structured it this way, from Matthew Anderson, who do you foresee getting the bulk of starts at left back once World Cup qualification begins? If we're both saying Dest is maybe a right back for us at this point, who's going on the left side, Daryl? Right now, I think it's Tim Ream. Agreed. And I am happy with it being Tim Ream. I think so too. I think it's Tim Ream because Berhalter seems to love him, right? Yep. He wears the armband a lot. I think almost all of his recent performances, mm-hmm. including the Gold Cup, have been excellent. At left back, I, I think he's a fine left back. Yep. I think Dest is option number two. Yeah, I think that's probably about it for yeah. me. I, I don't think uh, the other options we've seen, no disrespect to Daniel Lovitz, but he is not moving the needle for me. He is not in that spot where I'm like, yeah, that's a capable left-back option. Mm-hmm. I would not be, love that. I do think it's maybe Sergio Dest is the backup left-back. Maybe we see some more experimentation. But I think, to your point, what we saw from Ream, especially in this game against Canada, was being good on the ball, for the most part. Some bad giveaways, but I think everybody on the team had a giveaway or two. So I guess, you know, that then is the mean or whatever becomes the norm. But, like, I, I appreciated what he could do on the ball. I appreciated him defensively, and I appreciated him. A lot of wins. Yeah, that's the thing, is, like, like waiting and then stepping in to win the ball when Canada thought they had an outlet and, like, they would try to chip it over onto, like, the right wing, Canada's right wing. Ream won that ball or fought for that ball or at the very least put it out for a throw-in for Canada. But they never really had any joy going down that side, and I think mm-hmm. it's because he was very confident in what he was doing and uh, successfully completed his assignments. So we're super happy with... Uh, remit left back for a World Cup qualifying. I'm happy right? with remit left back. <laughs> okay. Um, is it worth, I think it's worth just uh, making the very obvious point that the reason Dest is a weaker left back than mm-hmm. he is a right back is that he's right footed. Right. Right? Yeah. That's the very basic simple thing and he can do it perfectly well mm-hmm. but like, you know, I'm a big proponent of mm-hmm. you, you should be that footed player on that side of the field right. otherwise you end up taking odd angles. Right. Um, I think that's as true of Dest as anyone yeah. but I would still take it over Say a Daniel Lovitz. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because, like, yes, you may have the, like, Aryan Robin who cuts inside uh, and then Dest is, like, like, defending with his dominant right foot. Maybe that makes sense. But if you're trying to block across with your weaker foot, it's still your weaker foot. And mm-hmm. in the same way that it's harder to play across with your weaker foot, even at professional level, you're still not going to be quite as confident. Yep. Like, same what, thing. Yeah, when he gets forward, he's going to be maybe more inclined to dribble mm-hmm. infield than go outside and cross right. it. Yeah. And, I w- and I would venture to guess that the more times you see a defender go for the, the desperation block and get beat by like a cutback, it's probably when they're leading with their weaker foot. Because I think, for me personally, if I'm defending Daryl and he dribbles under my right foot, I feel confident stepping in and winning that ball more so than I do stepping in and winning with my left foot. Yeah. So I feel like that, like your non-dominant foot lends itself to more sort of reckless challenges or more physical challenges because I know at least some of me is going to get the ball, so I'll go for it. So yeah, again, I think more effective as a right back. All right, two more questions to go. Mm-hmm. Next one is from James Porter. Um, what do you think uh, Triple G's record with the national team would be? That's Bear Halter for people who don't mm-hmm. know. What would his record with the national team be if Tyler Adams, John Brooks, and Josie Altador had played all his games? And how do you think the US fan base's perception of this new era would be different as a result? I do think it's a lot better. I really do. I think that we maybe still have some of the concerns that we have had. I think it, like, does having John Brooks in really help us in that friendly against Mexico? Maybe a little bit in that, like, he wins some aerial challenges. He's a little bit more physical. Maybe in the Gold Cup final against Mexico That's well. a, That's another big one. But I, I think we still have some of the vulnerabilities and issues. Like, 
putting Tyler, in, uh, Tyler Adams in in place of Michael Bradley. I know people don't like Michael Bradley. I know there are people out there who don't like him. But, like, Tyler Adams is not going to be able to deal with four central midfielders when he isn't part of a midfield two. Like, that doesn't change that necessarily. But I do you think— You would have dealt better, but that not is probably true. to solve it. Yeah. But I do think that if you put in those players, it makes the game plan a little bit easier to execute because yeah. Josie Altidore is very good at hold-up play, as we have talked about. I think he fits the system yeah, the best of any striker. Yeah, he can connect play in a way yeah. that— like, like Zardes and Sargent aren't perfect. Absolutely. And, and we've seen if the jo- job of that number nine is occasionally to stretch the defense, Josie can do that. But if it's also to drop in and link up play and facilitate attacks, Josie can certainly do that. That yep. makes sense to me. John Brooks probably helps the team, helps organize the defense, is that veteran leader and that veteran presence. I, and I'll go as far as saying Adams would add bite and tackles yeah. to the midfield, even when the tactical mm-hmm. system wasn't designed in the best possible way yeah. to do that. So, And we're talking I'm, center back, center midfielder, center forward. Like That is the spine, spine of right? a team that we have missed a lot of. So how much better would results have been? I know it's really hard to play this like what ifs game, mm-hmm. but how much better would results have been? Like I, in my head, I would say maybe things would be very similar, but we wouldn't have lost away to Canada. Yeah. So there wouldn't have been that. Definitely the lowest point of the entire year mm-hmm. was the away loss to Canada, right? Um, if you said the Mexico 3-0, bad as it was, still only a friendly this was for points, like haven't lost against them in 34 years, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It felt to me like people were angriest um, after that away loss to Canada. I think knowing what we think we know now is the best. I'm going to put that. Uh, I think I agree because at least in the Mexico game, there's an argument to be made that the United States was maybe trying to do the things that they did in the win against Canada by yeah. spreading it wide then looking for those vulnerabilities. And they were just under so much pressure yeah, that they could it, not find their way out. We use it to experiment. Right. right? Okay, Whereas, so if you accept my premise that yeah. the away game against Canada, the defeat was the low yeah. point, mm-hmm. then if that maybe that hadn't happened with Brooks, Adams, Altador. Yeah. I think that affects the way people see Berhalter. Yeah, and, and I also think that if you have John Brooks, like veteran presence, been to a World Cup, Josie Altador, veteran presence, been to a World Cup, Tyler Adams hopes to go to a World Cup, not quite the veteran presence, but those first two I mentioned, I also do wonder if maybe there's a little bit more uh, talking in the locker room about, hey, mm-hmm. this isn't working, hey, we need to change this, we need to adjust that. Even A bit more now about how to play an away game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even what we saw uh, in the Canada game when like we saw John Brooks tell like Tyler, uh, Jackson Newell, you got to go do this. Yeah, yeah. Like, is Walker Zimmerman as inclined to do that? Even Tim Ream, is he as inclined to say you've got to do this when he himself is kind of learning the system? Okay, so we agree that things would have been better and Berhalter's reputation would be maybe a little higher with US fans. Mm -hmm. I've got a wrinkle to throw in for you. If Tyler Adams had been available for the entire year, Mm -hmm. do you remember the early conversation was about... right back to center midfield. Right back to center midfield, the Tyler Adams role. That's been essentially abandoned, right? We've changed that completely. I think the national team shape and style would have gone down that path. And I honestly think a lot of what we thought about Berhalter would depend on how successful that was because ev- almost everybody was against it, right? Like really did not like the idea. If he oh, had, Adams being right back to center midfield? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if Berhalter had been proved right, that that was really workable and it actually got like gave us a great right back and gave us Adams in midfield because part of the thing was that he would transition there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that might have been a big tactical theory proved right win for Berhalter or he could have had to give up on it after three or four games because it just wasn't working. It would have been a tactical theory proved wrong thing for Berhalter. So I'm basically saying um, that experiment would have run its course and we would judge Berhalter either positively or negatively based on how successful it was. As things stand, we never got to run the experiment. W- one clarification there, though. Like, didn't it kind of run its course? Like, I don't no, rem- he's barely played. 
No, 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 no. I'm saying, like, didn't that experiment of right back to center midfield, like, we did that and it seemed like it was working and then we just kind of stopped doing it. Because Adams was unavailable. Yeah. I mean, but Adams never did it. I, I guess that's my point. Is like he we did, did it with, once we against, did it with, I want to say, Ecuador. But didn't he we do it with Nick game. Lima and it was fine yeah. and it was like, okay, this could be the way forward. I guess mm-hmm. in my mind, I feel like we still don't know why he stopped doing that. Cause I, I think I'm pretty confident it's because Tyler Adams, who it was absolutely designed for, mm-hmm. was unavailable. I think it's that simple. I think maybe like it's it's not designed for Nick Lima in the long run, right? Mm-hmm. It's designed for Tyler Adams. And the fact that he was he has this long term injury, um, I think Bell is probably thinking, all right, we'll wait. Either we'll wait till he gets back, or we'll just do something else. Like the thing with um, having the right back just go really high and wide all uh-huh. the time suits Reggie Cannon better, right? So uh-huh. I think it's more like Reggie Cannon's our best right back. So let's go with this plan instead. Okay. Yeah. So do you think there's still a chance that we ever see that happen again? Or do I think, you think yeah, it's I think just... it's possible. I think once Adams is back and definitely fit, hmm. I think Bellhalter might, you know, almost like go through his files and be like, oh yeah, we never really gave this a try. I guess, I guess it is entirely dependent on if that is the reason why he went away from that. If it was just that he had been expecting Tyler Adams to be yeah. available and he never was versus this this would work maybe with Tyler Adams, but nothing else around it is working. So I've got to change the system again. I mean, he specifically said it was designed for Tyler Adams. Right. right? So if he'd been fit and I just think that would all I'm saying is mm-hmm. it would have been a big thing that we judged Berhalter okay. on if we'd had multiple games where Adams played the right back to center mid role. Mm-hmm. But we never got to see that anyway. So we can't be there's no way to judge him on that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? OK. Yeah. So, so it's a thing we might have judged him on, but we can't judge him on. Yeah, which is the premise of the question, gotcha. right? Mm-hmm. Is what would have happened if Adams was available? That would have happened. And All I think right. it would have changed the course of how the national team lined up and did things. Okay. Do, do you have a speculation on how it would have changed it? I think it would have worked, but okay. I can't prove it, right? No? I have no evidence because we haven't had more than one game of him doing it. Right. Yeah. I think it would have worked. I think given the way we've seen the United States struggle to execute some game plans that I would say are slightly basic, uh, I don't know if a right back becoming a central midfielder and all the adjustments that are required defensively well, would uh, would go so seamlessly. Let me give you this, though. When the, the right back goes to central midfield, mm-hmm. you essentially have four central midfielders, right? You have like the number six, you have... Adams alongside him, mm-hmm. and then you have the two number 10s ahead of him. You have your sort of four-man midfield, mm-hmm. which might have matched up numerically with Canada's uh, 2-2 four-man midfield. Like, it might, have all, it might have all worked out nicely, but we never, we never got to see it. At the risk of continuing this, but don't you only do that when you have the ball? And then yes. as soon as you lose it, doesn't tell Adams have to drop back to a right back. It spot? depends where the ball is. It's like when it's in the idea is that when it was in uh, transition, then coming back the other way, uh-huh. you've got that extra defensive midfielder and Adams' ball winning ability. So the way I heard Burhouse explain it was, it was like a, a counter to the counter that you were set up to win the ball back hmm. after you'd lost it. Right. So yeah, it, it might have worked. We'll either never know or we'll, we might know in the distant future. Mm-hmm. All, right. All right, we shall see. Ready to move on? I believe I am. All right. Andrew Moore asks, what would a successful 2020 for Bearhalter and the men's national team look like? And what would make it a total disaster? It's, it's tricky to answer because there are so few like big things happening in 2020 for the U.S. There's a lot of friendlies. Then there's the potential Nations League final, semifinal if we make it there. And then there's World Cup qualifying. To me, like if we make it to the Nations League semifinal, we're going to be playing stronger opposition. So probably the best a successful 2020 would be winning that or at least going to the final and playing Mexico. And like ideally the best possible one would be beating Mexico and then starting World Cup off, World Cup qualifying off with wins all over the place. Yeah. Uh, the medium one would be like going to the final and maybe not getting embarrassed by Mexico, but then also starting World Cup qualifying on a solid foot. And then maybe a disaster would be certainly not making it to the Nations League semifinal to begin with. That would be a bummer. Yeah. Playing very poorly there and then like well, dropping that would, that would happen this year, right? Not making it to the semifinal would happen if we don't beat Cuba True. tomorrow. Yes. I guess that just makes it more of a bummer in 2020, but that doesn't necessarily but, affect the 2020 standing. I think it really is just 
just uh, how the United States does when they qualify for that tournament, which they will. But then also, if they struggled in World Cup qualifying, that would be even if they won the Nations League and then like lost the first two games. I think that is pretty much a disaster. I think it's fair to say. Almost no matter what happens in the Nations League, we prefer a good performance, mm-hmm. right, in the semis and hopefully the final. 2020 will be judged by what happens in World Cup qualifying, yes. which starts in September, yeah. right? The dates aren't out yet, but it's, it starts in September, which could mean we play in the September, October, November windows. We could play anywhere between four and six mm-hmm. um, hex games. We might have a good idea of how World Cup qualifying is going, and it really will be all about that. Yes. Yeah. I just thought, of, I think my absolute worst case is like the United States makes it to the final of the Nations League and then like loses to Mexico and then maybe gets like one point from the first two World Cup qualifiers. But it spun to us as like progress, like we made it to the Nations League final and like it sort of spun that way. That would be probably be the disaster in my mind because yeah. it suddenly is like, oh, not only, not only is it not good, but also the narrative is, but it's fine and everything's great. All right, but forget what the U.S. soccer narrative is just in terms of us judging no. it. it. What's really important is how – I'm saying what we can judge 2020 on is how World Cup qualifiers goes right it's really all about right. september october right November. what i mean more so is that like if you see u.s soccer still being like things are great then to me it's like it's not even disastrous enough that they're like yeah you're right it's got to be changed this is not good anymore 20 ending on 2020 with like everything is bad but u.s soccer still like everything's great i see that's what would be a disaster so for what, me. You, what you're saying would be a disaster is if um world Cup qualifying went off to a horrible start mm-hmm. But U.S. soccer were firmly saying, no, we're sticking with how things are. We made it to the final and the all other right. thing, so it's all good. So I think that is my disaster. But I absolutely am with you that it's all about World Cup qualifying, and that has okay. to go well. And what is a good World Cup qualifying start? I've, I've got on, on my page, um, win all your home games. Mm-hmm. Ties versus Mexico would be acceptable mm-hmm. at home. Don't lose any away games and don't draw any winnable away games. Yeah. Like if we go away to El Salvador in September and draw, mm-hmm. I'd be thinking that's not quite good. Yeah. Thing. I mean, it depends on how the World Cup, qual- World Cup qualifying starts. Because if it is another like flipping what it was last time around, if it was like Mexico away to start and then say Costa Rica at yeah. home or some variation of that, it is a tougher one. Having, having said earlier in the show that like I want us to go out and try to get three points on the road, that makes more sense to me. Saying that, that if it did start off the way I just described and we came away with four points, a draw at Mexico and a win at home against Costa Rica, I'd be pretty pumped. I'd, I'd quite like the the uh, the way the schedule works is for mm-hmm. us to mirror what happened last time. Yeah. We'd have a really good sort of uh, yardstick to, to judge yeah. it against, especially because Costa Rica aren't as good as last time. It, are you with me <laughs> that, that – a all right, see, we start out with a game against Mexico, first game of qualifying at home. We In draw, Columbus. We draw 1-1. Or no nil We draw no nil like, are you happy with that result given the way our last two games against Mexico have gone? Yes. Yep, I'm yeah. right there with you. So it'll be the first time we haven't lost. It'll be progress mm-hmm. under yeah. Berhalter, and it would be a better result than when Klinsman started the campaign for 2018 yep. when we lost at home, right? That would you. be pro- – mm-hmm. I honestly think any any non-loss result against Mexico at home is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So then what is your – to re, uh, restate, what is your, like, disaster of 2020? What What is the worst-case scenario for you? Um, again, like, almost – even though you know I'm a Nations League stand, uh-huh. um, no matter what happens in the Nations League, the disaster is a bad yep. start to World Cup qualifying. Okay. Yeah. So, but what is like the the bar for like like okay and then bad underneath it? Is it like if we get two points from the first two games, one home, one away? Are you okay with that? No, it depends who it is, right? Okay. If it's Mexico and Costa Rica, maybe. Mm-hmm. But if it's like 
El Salvador and Honduras, then yeah. no. Okay. Then all I'm right. panicking. Yeah, yeah, I'm really panicking. So that's a lot of points dropped early on. Yeah. Right. So then it goes back so, to your So point. it's all relative to who the opponents right. are. Right. So it goes back to like, don't lose against uh, beatable teams. Don't draw against winnable games as well, yep. basically. Yeah, that, that would be the And don't be lose the against drawable opponents. Too. Yeah, yep. that all makes sense. And then not Berhalter or men's national team, senior mm-hmm. team related, but another big win in March of 2020. Yeah will be to qualify for the Olympics for the first time since 2008. I right? would be fine with that. Yeah. I think that would be a major... Um, we've talked about this before, right? We don't need to go over it again. That would be a major step mm-hmm. forward for the, the US soccer men's program is to get the U23 team to the Olympics. Yes. Right? So we'll know that in March. Mm-hmm. So you, your milestones are March qualifying for the Olympics, June, hopefully Nations League semifinals and final. And then the real deal is starting in September, World Cup qualifying right. in the hex. And I, I do just want to reiterate that Andrew's question was about the U.S. men's national team, because obviously if this were just about U.S. soccer, then our goal would be the women winning uh, Olympic gold as well. We would of throw course. that one in there. But with just the men, I would say uh, not being terrible would be a start. And then uh, qualifying for the Olympics would be a bonus. <laughs> You ready to close out the show with yeah, some scouting? I think so. All right. We have many scouting mm. reports that I'm excited to read because there's some exciting names in here. Mm. Would you like to kick us off, Dad? I would, with the exciting name of Damon Kisau. Damon, thank you. Kisau, I believe it is. Thank you for sending me the pronunciation that I immediately forgot. Scouting Harvey Elliott, 16-year-old English midfielder for Liverpool. Elliott has been getting minutes for Liverpool's U23s this season, as well as making his first team debut in their 2-0 win over MK Dons in the Carabao Cup. However, he ran into some trouble when he was fined 350 pounds and suspended for 14 days by the FA for posting a Snapchat video while he was still playing at Fulham. He moved from Fulham to Liverpool. Uh, In the video, he used some terms to mock Harry Kane and was required to take an education course. Speaking of Fulham... Wait, uh, wait, what did he do? uh, Do you know? uh, I'm going to... Honestly, I'm avoiding it because I don't know the proper parlance for it, but I'm going to assume that it was references to Harry Kane being differently abled. I see. That would be my I see, guess. I see. Um, yeah. So speaking of Fulham, uh, they're awaiting a tribunal decision on Elliott's transfer to Liverpool and are asking for seven million pounds in compensation. Okay. Mm-hmm. John Adams, not that one, is scouting Shayan Harrison, the 22-year-old English strikeout for Almere City. Shayan has seven goals in 15 appearances for Almere City in the Dutch second division. Greg Berhalter is not impressed. After scoring his sixth of the season against go-ahead Eagles, Harrison celebrated with his teammates, but that didn't stop him from catching a beer thrown from the stand with his already raised hand and then miming as if he were finishing off said beer. Dutch second division soccer is really something to behold. The only way to be cooler, finish off that beer. <laughs> uh, Brighton Castle. Did Donovan do that once? No, sunglasses is what Donovan did. Is that what he did? Put sunglasses somebody, on. We've definitely seen somebody drink a beer, and I cannot remember who it was, but somebody definitely did that. Uh, Brighton Castle scouting uh, Lee Kang-in, uh, 18-year-old South Korean midfielder for Valencia. Lee got his first Champions League start in Valencia's 4-1 win over Lille. He started the game as a right midfielder but was switched to left when Denis Cheryshev was subbed off due to injury in the first half. Lee was largely ineffective in the game, and all four of Valencia's goals came after he was subbed off in the 54th minute, but still, Champions League minutes for Lee Kang-in. Not too bad, not too nah. bad. Russell Varner is getting Alex Mendez, the 19-year-old American midfielder for Ajax. Russell says Mendez was named to Jason Kreis's U23 roster in preparation for Olympic qualifying uh, with a, in a crowded midfield that included the likes of Aronson, Ledesma, Mihailovic. Mendez has played in 10 games a season for young Ajax, starting four and tallying one assist and a little more than 340 minutes. Mm-hmm. I do know that in the first U23 game against Brazil, which the US lost 1-0, Mendez only got like 15 minutes or so, mm-hmm. but had a couple of nice little passes. And were they playing last night as well? They played the... Yeah. Cayman Islands representative 11. Yes. So Chile dropped out uh-huh. because of all the unrest in uh, Chile right now. And because the tournament was being held mm-hmm. in the Cayman Islands, 
they kind of just quickly put together a Cayman Islands eleven. Right. Who? I've... Not ca- sorry, Cayman Islands. Grand Canary. Grand Canary. Yeah. Grand okay. Canary. Canary Islands. There right. we go. Let's get this right. Mm-hmm. The Canary Islands eleven. Right. Right. That makes sense. And I believe they struggled for a while. I think they ended up winning that one, but I think it was like nil yes. nil for a good long while. Yeah. Uh, against a team that I, I think I forget who tweeted it, but uh, were smashed by Argentina fourteen nil. I think Travis yep. Clark. I think tweeted that one. So not a great. It's not a great outing for the U twenty threes. Well, luckily we're going to talk some more about them. Nick Imhoff okay. scouting Emmanuel Sabi. Uh, 21-year-old American forward for Holbro. Sabi scored Holbro's lone goal in a 2-1 loss to Odense uh, in early November. His goal came on a free kick around 20 to 25 yards from goal that he hit up and over the wall and into the top corner of the net. He followed that up in their next game with a half volley with his weaker foot off a botched clearance into the bottom corner. Lots of descriptions there. His consistent run of form earned him a call-up to that same U23 squad. Ira Jersey is scouting Ashley Sanchez, 20-year-old American attacker for UCLA. Ira says Ashley Sanchez has once again found her form just in time for the NCAA playoffs. Mm -hmm. She helped with two assists in the 14th-ranked Bruins 4-2 win over USC, um, thereby thereby breaking the school assist record with 39, oh, in her three years Mm -hmm. of collegiate play. I mean, I was impressed, but I thought it was a single season. Still pretty good over three years. Um, 39 in three years of collegiate play. Ashley Sanchez was massive down the stretch of the Pac-12 regular season, helping the team win eight of nine, getting three goals and nine assists during that period. Mm -hmm. A lot of stats in there. A lot of stats in there, but they're all good. Yeah, UCLA, good. Uh, Katie Sutton counting Katie, scouting Katie Cousins, who's also good. Katie Cousins is a 22-year-old American midfielder for the University of Tennessee. Cousins' college career has come to an end this week. It came to an end when uh, UT failed to earn a berth in the NCAA tournament. Cousins was a consistent performer in the midfield and finished the year with four assists and one goal. She graduates in December and will be eligible for the 2020 NWSL draft. I look forward to seeing her in the NWSL because she's a local player, right? She's from yes, the sir. Richmond area. Uh, Matt Cass is... Uh, uh, scouting, not shouting, Matt Carson mm-hmm. is scouting Lucas Toussaint, 22-year-old French midfielder for Lyon. When asked about Lyon's recent loss to Marseille, Lyon coach Rudy Garcia said Lucas' presence in the midfield was what the team missed the most. Toussaint also helped Lyon battle to a 3-1 win over Benfica in the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Todd Ido scouting Takafusa Kubo, 18-year-old Japanese attacker on loan at Real Mallorca from Real Madrid. Kubo scored his first La Liga goal in Mallorca's 3-1 victory over Villarreal. He received the ball just outside the box, took one dribble to the left, and then rifled the ball past the keeper with his left foot. The goal makes him the youngest Japanese goal scorer in the history of Europe's top five leagues. He also won the penalty that led to Mallorca's first goal, so solid all-around game. Kubo did not, however, get a call-up to Japan's upcoming World Cup qualifiers since the 2020 Olympics are being held in Tokyo. The JFA, the Japanese Football Association, is focused on winning gold in men's soccer with Kubo being one of the stars of the team. And none of the young Japanese stars under the age of 22 were called into the senior Japanese team as a result. Okay. Jesse Franco is scouting uh, Matteo Rittaccio, the 18-year-old Italian-American midfielder for Liverpool. I think I know what this is. Jesse says, Liverpool announced last week that Matteo has signed his first professional contract with the team Mm -hmm. after joining in the summer of 2018. Just let that sink in, everybody. We've got another American signing a professional contract at Liverpool. Get him on the Nations League plane. Matteo started off this season well before going down with injury, but the Liverpool press release notes uh, that he's expected to return to action early in the new year. Nations League plane. Uh, um, I assume that exists. Steve Renard scouting Yuri yeah, Tielemans. They're building it specially. I think so. Uh, 22-year-old Belgian midfielder for AS Monaco, Yuri Tielemans. Tielemans played a starring role once again Wait, for the Foxes. For Leicester? 
Oh, I said AS Monaco, didn't I? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. Think, I think it says, he's, it he's, says AS Monaco in there. No. Is he still on loan from Monaco or has he been signed permanently? Is that what it was? Is that why Monaco were in the thing? Either way, he definitely plays for Leicester. Uh, after returning from a... Oh, no, wrong one. Tielemans played a starring role once again for the Foxes in their 2-0 win over Arsenal. He set up Jamie Vardy's goal with a slightly delayed run to get into position uh, for the assist that came across the box, passing magically through two defenders in the process, or so it appeared, says Steve. He was on loan last year and has been signed permanently now. He is a Leicester mm, player I don't through- know about that one. Through. Not sure about that one. Chloe Crumrai is scouting Sophia Smith, the 19-year-old American forward for Stanford. Mm-hmm. Chloe says after returning from a nearly year-long ankle injury, Sophia Smith has helped lead the Stanford Cardinal to their fourth consecutive number one seed in the NCAA Women's Soccer Tournament. She finished the regular season with 10 goals, five assists, and appears fully returned to her pre-injury form. I remember mm-hmm. a U.S. Uh, youth team where she was the player, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I'm glad she's back from that year-long ankle injury. And playing for the juggernaut that will win all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis Francisco Sarmiento scouting Danny Leva, the 16-year-old American midfielder for AS Monaco. No, just kidding. Seattle Sanders. <laughs> Seattle Sanders. Leva celebrated the Seattle Sanders victory over Toronto FC in the MLS Cup final after he returned from the U-17 World Cup. Francisco is guessing that Leva will split time with uh, the Tacoma Defiance and the Sounders next season. I will good. add that while he definitely celebrated with his teammates, Danny Leva being 16, not so involved in the beer showers that happened. <laughs> I want to see him replace Gustav Svensson. Yeah. Or Christian Mordan. Uh, I think that could be a difficult challenge. We'll see what happens. Danny's up to it. Dylan Tilbury is scouting Cole Bassett, the 18-year-old American midfielder for the Colorado Rapids. Dylan says Bassett has been training with Arsenal U23s. It's unclear if this means a move is in Bassett's future because Arsenal and the Rapids share some ownership. Brian Sheretta of American Soccer Now reported in September that Bassett is seeking to acquire a Greek passport that could help him avoid work permit issues if a move happens. Mm-hmm. Could buy Will Trapp's Greek passport? Uh, yeah, that's fine. I think yeah, that's how it works. Pretty much. Maybe right. just don't advocate it on a podcast. You just got to do it quietly. <laughs> yeah, you just got to like take the yeah. picture out, put your scotch in. tape your own photo yeah, to it. Perfect. Easy. What could go easy. wrong? What could go wrong? Nothing. Do it. <laughs> Thank <laughs> don't you. Don't tell to- TSA we sent you. <laughs> Thank you to everybody for the scouting reports. If you haven't listened to Soccer One Hundred and One yet. Go find it together. The Johan Cruyff episode is good, right? We Mm -hmm. put work into it. Um, It was oft delayed because we kept putting more research into it. And then we managed to get most of that research into one fast-paced, entertaining, informative episode. There's my review of our own show. I agree with that. I agree with that review entirely. Other than to say that we got... Most of the relevant research. There I didn't get go. all my research, but I think a lot of it was not relevant. You're, you have a page of irrelevant research that got left out. Kind of. <laughs> you don't want an entire explanation of what the Hesperia mutiny was and how it didn't really factor into too much? But it's good to know you had that backstory. I got excited. Yeah. I wanted to know what it was. Anytime there's a mutiny, I'm like, let's talk about it. Including Tampa Bay. I want to talk about them too. So Soccer mm-hmm. 101 is the podcast. Please go and find it. More episodes coming your way soon, including, say it quietly, a pro rel episode. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a pro Definitely say it quietly. Definitely say it quietly. People will yell. Before that, we will be back with USA v Cuba review uh, late Tuesday night. We'll have that show for you after the game. Um, Until then, I will say, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Why is Tampa so obsessed with pirate culture? The Buccaneers, the Rowdies, and the Mutiny. It's a lot of, like, sea happening down there. Because it's all about the bay. I guess so. It's all about but, like, the bay. you don't all have to be pirates, you know? Like, one of you could be the foxes if you want to, is all I'm saying. The foxes don't go in the water. You don't know. You don't know what they do. I do know that foxes don't go in the water. They could be the porpoises. <laughs> anyway, right back at you, buddy. <laughs> the, the manatees. That's what they should be. <laughs> the Tampa manatees. Perfect. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, listeners, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks.